message this morning. And uh, we will hope, uh, pray, and through an enormous act of faith, uh, um, like uh, maybe we'll get through this morning without everything kind of going off the rails again. Um, the Jeremy, are you going to set up the... All right. So we, uh, we are going to set up the phone and stream with the phone because nothing is working today. Uh, I will confess I am a little frazzled because I rewrote the sermon this morning at about 8 a.m., 7.30-ish. Uh, and so, uh, we will see how the morning goes. Uh, been a lot of running around and a lot of chasing after and trying to figure out why this doesn't work or that doesn't work. And it has been not very fun. And so I need to pray and kind of, yeah, I'll let it go. (laughs) Heavenly Father, I pray that you be with us this morning. I pray for your grace on us. I pray for your, your spirit to fill me, for your peace to be on this place this morning, for, uh, just for, for you to be in our midst. I pray that all of the, the worries of the world, all of the rush and the hustle and the bustle and the craziness of, of this season, Lord God, that you would just take it, um, that you would just take it away from us, that you would uh, just bring us into your presence today. Um, I pray that we would hear from you. I pray that we would know you. I pray that we would, um, your, your spirit would break the stony parts of our hearts and the big strongholds and and come into us and make us more like Jesus. Um, especially in this Christmas season, I pray for, for us to keep our eyes set on, uh, on the coming of your Son, on the, the incarnation when God himself became flesh. Um, thank you so much for the blessing of this season and help us to appreciate uh, and celebrate. In Jesus' name, amen. Ooh, so, um, who's having a busy month? Is it just... Me, uh, one thing after another, after another, I, uh, uh, the Christmas stroll yesterday, my wife and I got involved in aspects of that, not as much as Leanne, who is awesome, or Twyla, or a few other people, but we were kind of um, involved there, and it, it became kind of a, a big time crunch, and um, then we had the play, which was fun and awesome and all of this stuff happening and kind of rolling and, and accumulating. And then, um, like, we, we sang Christmas music this morning, which I enjoy singing Christmas music in church, and I sung nothing. You know what I did? I chased cables and uh, tried to figure out where my son is sitting and everything else. And um, I had this moment of realization, and it was the same moment of realization I had uh, this week, this is, uh, this is my daughter, Abigail. She is just cute as a button. Can we all agree? This is from the Christmas play we did here several years ago. I have this picture uh, regularly. I rotate it onto my desktop at, in the office. And, and all of my children are wonderful and beautiful. And, and Abby is just my example today, like, like where um, I remember holding her. When she's just born, and there was just sort of this overwhelm and this this wonder, like this is a brand new soul, this is a brand new person, and she was so cute, and I I got to give her a first bath, and I got to, you know, like I I remember I think it was Christmas, um, when she was uh, almost one that she took her first step, was it? 
Yeah, and, and that was a gift that kept on giving. And I remember the wonder of watching this little person stand up and walk. And, and it's not, you know, there's nothing like factual about it. You just sort of like, oh, wow, she's walking, you know? And, and all of these little steps along the way, um, I've watched my son do it. I, I, I've watched Josh do it to a degree. I've watched, you know, and there's this wonder and this, like, astonishment and this, like, sort of enrapturing that happens with parenting that, I mean, there are other parts of life that are like that, but this is my example. Because last night during the play, actually my first photo is uh, from uh, Friday, my daughter walks in wearing her high heels and this lawyer outfit because she played a lawyer in the play, and I looked at her and I thought, oh my goodness, what has happened? I, I didn't panic, but I had a moment of sort of inner turmoil because my little girl, my little angel, my, my little, she's growing up, and she's growing up so quickly. And, you know, we, we did the play, and she just, like, was so there and so mature and so all of these things, and, and it was just really, it, it, it was distracting, right? But it was also wonderful. And, and inside, I was a little afraid because it was this day that, like, I'm not going to have my tiny little Abby used to watch the Muppet show in my office downstairs while I would write sermons. And, and that's, that era is what it is. So right at the end of the, the play, Abby is standing next to me, and she reaches over and very gently grabs my hand. And in my head, I'm trying to follow the lines, but I'm also thinking, is this because she's happy and she wants to hold my hand because she's happy? Is this because she's nervous and she wants to hold my hand because she's nervous? Or because we're on stage together and she gets to share this moment and it's holding hands time? Or whatever it was. And I began wondering and wondering and wondering. And she let go of my hand to walk across the stage and stop and do her lines. And I realized that she's standing on high heels and her ankles are doing their own little performance. And that was the moment I realized she grabbed my hand because she was going to fall over. And I've been thinking a lot about that. And actually, you know what happened, though? Because like, it sort of popped my bubble, right? But at the same time, I, like, there's a metaphor there. I get to be this person in my daughter's life. She gets to hold my hand when she needs to be steadied. And just because she's not, you know, one anymore, just because she's not four anymore, um, I still get to be the one who holds her hand and steadies her. And I got to thinking, I realized, oh, it's not that she's going to leave. She's just going to and or a new stage where I get to wonder at the new stuff, right? I get to wonder as my, my tiny little peanut who is so little I could hold her in my hand or carry her around in, like a football, uh, she, she's just going to be older. And it's weird how we have this moment of wonder with a miracle when we first hold it. And we have this moment of wonder when we see it take its first step and we hear it speak its first word. And then by the time they've said their 8,000th word, you're a little less wondrous. Right? And then work invades. And then all of the other things push and pull. And the wonder can easily slip away. Isn't it true? And then you're busy running them everywhere. And there's a little less astonishment because you're busy. And... My message this morning, what we're going to talk about is Christmas, but I want to encourage you guys. I'm going to tell you up front, what we're going to talk about is, is wonder. We're going to talk about the astonishment that should be associated with this season 
that so often isn't because you can't find a lighter to light a candle in front of the church on the second week of Advent. So we're not lighting a candle today because somehow the 12 lighters we own are all gone. I blame the teenagers. Um, But, like, I didn't sing Christmas songs this morning because I was trying to get the audio to work for the stream. And I, I mean, like, all of this stuff disappears so quickly because you're busy. And because, honestly, how many of y'all have heard about 8 million Christmas sermons? Right? It gets hard to come up with a clever new sermon, and otherwise it can be boring. But it shouldn't be boring because this should be a tale of wonder for us. And so this morning, we're actually going to not start on the birth of Jesus just yet. Um, We're going to be in Luke 1, uh, and we're going to look at the birth of John the Baptist. We're going to this week and next week talk about John the Baptist, because there's some really cool stuff here. And I I ended up cutting the sermon in half because I really wanted to drill down on some elements here. So some background. This is Advent. It's the four weeks preceding Christmas. What we're really supposed to be doing during Advent, what the church has done historically is we prepare our hearts for celebrating the incarnation. Like God's looking at us and we struggle and and we sin and we stumble and we're not good enough to climb up to him. And so God loves us so much that he steps from the mountaintop down to us and becomes one of us. Like eternity outside of time and space steps into time and space as a man because God loves us that much. That, wow. Like Advent is when we're supposed to put this in our minds and we're supposed to prepare our hearts where we're supposed to like create room to them where joy to the world is supposed to fill our ears and our mind and our lives because like we're supposed to get ready to celebrate. Last week we talked about this idea that You know, we don't diet now, we celebrate. We don't fast now, we don't mourn now, we celebrate because Christ is coming. Um, And so last week we talked about it's no time to diet, it's time to celebrate. This week we're going to talk about this as a tale of wonder. um, A tale of, like, miracle and and beautiful and exciting and and everything else. And so i got to tell you, I'm going to divert and I'm going to talk one of my favorite coolest little things that not little big things that you're going to find in the bible we're going to talk about the covenants and we're going to work up to john so follow me here we'll get back to christmas it makes sense um and i plan to do a few deep dives along or a few like teaching videos about this because there's so much awesome stuff if you find it interesting ask and i'll make sure to do it otherwise i might forget um but like the covenants are contracts god makes with god uh, not god with man with us Right? And so it's a little like a cell phone contract, except that, you know, eternity's on the line. I mean, it just feels like you pay for a phone for eternity. Um, but it is this agreement that God makes with mankind where he says, I will do this if you do this. And there's a lot of cool history in this we can't dig into. Um, but basically, God is going to keep his side no matter what. Right? And so God makes a series of covenants, and actually if you read the Old Testament properly, like not properly, if you read the Old Testament and dig beneath the surface, there's a series of contracts God makes with humanity, and they all lead up to Jesus. This is advanced course stuff, okay? I'm telling you some complex stuff, but if you ever wonder why do these things happen in the Old Testament, this is why. So you start off with Adam, 
where Adam has this contract, and it's a really simple contract. It is, I will take care of you. You will live in the garden. Life will be awesome. We will be friends. God walks in the garden with Adam and Eve. They spend time together. It is great. And all they have to do is not eat the apple or the piece of fruit. might have been a fig, actually. I think that's what ancient historians believe. But um, we don't know. Don't eat, the, don't eat off that tree. Don't do that. One rule. And they broke it because... Because it was a huge mistake. And so sin enters the world, and we go from God walking in the garden with his people to suddenly God is far away from his people. When God talks to his people, the earth shakes. If they come too close to him, they die. No one can see God and live. Sin is so abhorrent to God. Like, we talk about the danger to us, but like, really, God is so disgusted by sin that it is overwhelming. It is, it is so much so that God is so offended and overwhelmed by sin that as it enters his presence, it is burned up and destroyed, which means us. Everybody got it? And so there's this distance, but God didn't create us to have distance. And so everything from the end of the Adam covenant on is the story of God coming back to us. And it's a little like when you have kids, right? The first time they get to talk in, one of the very first words they learn is no or mine or if you wait long enough, I hate you, which is awful, right? And, like, then they become teenagers, and you can't get them to talk to you anymore at all. When they were two, they wouldn't shut up. Now they won't talk to you. And there's this whole thing, and you just you love them, and you want to be close to them. But, like, the rest of the story is the story of God bringing man back to him. There's a covenant he makes with Noah, which is really, really good. I won't kill all of you for sinning. Good deal, right? Um, and then Abraham comes along. Abraham is the important one, and we're going to focus hard on him today. Okay? Abraham was the first Jew. Ta-da! First Jewish man. God has, like, very limited to no relationship with mankind at this point. They have drifted away from him. There is separation. Nobody is God's people. And so God comes to Abraham, who is like a pagan living in, I don't know, uh, sort of Persia. Anyway, like where Iran would be now. Uh, But he's this pagan guy. And he has no sons, and he is very old. In ancient culture, ancient Middle Eastern culture, to not have children was considered to be a curse from God. Some of us, after a few years with our kids, feel differently. But then, like if, no, if Abraham dies, who, what happens to his wife? Well, no one's there to take care of her. Um, there are a bunch of other things, but children were seen as a blessing from God. And the more children you had, the more blessed you were. And oftentimes people would mock folks who had No children. And Abraham has no kids. And so God makes a deal with Abraham. He says, Abraham, if you do the things I ask, I will be be your God and you will be my people. And forever and ever and ever, we will have a contract. And you will be my people and I will be your God. And, like, it's a good deal, actually, because what he promises Abraham is, if you're going to be my people, you have to have children. What does Abraham want more than anything else in the world? Well, he wants kids. Actually, Abraham's name when God meets him is Abram, which means guy who has no kids. That's a paraphrase. Um, And people would have mocked him for this. They would have pitied him. They would have looked down on him because he had no children. And Abraham wants children desperately. And so Abraham agrees and he gets circumcised is one of the things he's supposed to do. 
and he's supposed to go to Israel. And he says, listen, if you're going to be my people, you've got to have a land. So go to the land. And so he travels, and he spends the rest of his life traveling, like traveling around the land. He becomes a nomad, and he is old already. And, like, he finally gets to the end of the story, and he has a child, one child. And that's what we're going to talk about today. After Abraham, you have Moses, and God modifies the covenant. And then David, King David, comes along, and God makes a contract with David, and he modifies it again. And then, when Christ comes, all of these other covenants, they fit together like a puzzle, and they work together to our salvation. We don't have time to do them all this morning. Got to put it on the Facebook page. Everybody got it? Like, but each step of the way, Abraham, you are my people if you do the circumcision thing and you come to my place, like the land. After that, it's the law and this. And there are all these little adjustments, and ultimately it works up to, like, the legal precedence for Christ taking our sins on himself. Got it? So all of the old covenants are a certain way. They were always working up to Jesus. They were never meant to be on their own. Nobody was ever saved by the old covenants. We are always, even Abraham, was saved by Christ. But it was belief in the promise God made. So we're going to move on from there. I know that was a lot. But understand the big important thing here. Did I get the name? Yeah, I did. Uh, The big important thing here is that Abraham, God makes an agreement with him. He's got no sons all of this other stuff, and this is the beginning of the Old Covenant system. It is the beginning of the Jewish people. So, Old Testament, one last thing we need to understand is prophets. Prophets were people who did not just tell the future. We oftentimes think, oh, he's a prophet, he'll tell me the future. That is not what prophets' jobs were. Prophets spoke for God. Generally, they were not people who would tell you what happened in the future. It did happen, but for the most part, they would come and say, hey, you're screwing up. And if you don't cut it out, God's going to squish you, right? And there's a lot of squishing that takes place with prophets. Like, they were not very popular. Most of them were murdered at some point or other. I'm not making that up. Jesus repeatedly emphasizes it. Because they would come along and they'd say, hey, guys, stop worshiping fertility gods. It's not okay. Stop sacrificing your children to Baal. It's not okay. And they'd be like, shut up. And they'd kill them. Saw them in half or whatever. Um, And so, like, that is what the prophets did. They pointed to God's um, will to sin. They called people to repentance. And lastly, they predicted God's redemption for the world. So when you read the story of Jesus' birth, it is loaded with predictions. Tons and tons and tons of predictions that all point forward to Jesus coming, right? Now, there's a moment here where we're going to stop and we're going to say, when you really dig into this stuff, it's a little breathtaking. It's a little exciting because you realize this is something God is doing. He is lining up history. He is predicting these things that happen nowhere. I mean, if you go to like, like Bethlehem was a decent sized town. It wasn't huge, but it was a decent sized town. You go to Nazareth, nothing is in Nazareth, right? Like nothing And in fact, there was a period of time where people predicted, like archaeologists would say, oh, well, Nazareth was made up because we couldn't find it in archaeology. Well, they found it eventually, and the problem was it was just so little. There was nothing there. Um, So all of these prophets, they point forward to this, this nowhere town, this young woman getting pregnant, this other stuff, like all of these things are coming. Um, second is Elijah. When we talk about the Old Testament prophets, there's this guy, Elijah. Read about him. He is fun. 
He is the wildest, wooliest, craziest of the prophets, right? And he is sort of the face of all the prophets. And so much so that there's a prediction that Elijah would come back and that he would sort of bring in this new age. We're going to talk about this next week, So, but I'm setting it up. Um, ultimately, a big part of what this is complicated. I'm not going to dig into it too much. A big chunk of the predictions about Elijah are about John the Baptist, right? And so as we read the story of the birth of Jesus, like part of that we have to look at it and say, oh my gosh, God set up all of these contracts, all of these agreements. He lined up all of history and humanity and everything else to bring Christ to the forefront, to like save his people, to save all people. Um, and he predicted it over and over again. And this Elijah thing is a part of the equation. Um, and that'll be next week. Uh, John the Baptist, huge deal. And we're going to talk about him this week and next week. But we're going to go back to Abraham. Abraham was the start of God's people. Everybody still with me? Anybody confused yet? Just a little? My wife is, so that's a bad sign. Um, so real quick, we have the covenants that all work together and end when Jesus shows up. We have got Elijah, who is a prophet, who's going to come back, and that's John the Baptist, right? John the Baptist is the very last of the Old Testament prophets. And so Abraham, what's going on with Abraham? Why are we going back to him? Well, first, first Jewish person, all the covenants start with him. He was old and he was childless. His name actually meant, I ain't got no kids. God promised him many children, as many as the grains of sand on the beach, promised him a homeland, and promised him that the whole world would be blessed through his offspring. His offspring, by the way, that it's referring to as Jesus. And then he and Sarah were so old, there was no way they were going to have kids. No way. Um, When Sarah finally has children, she is in her 90s. Uh, There aren't many 90-year-olds here today. Nope. Looking for a couple of people. I think we got Glenn is in his 90s, right? And then Francis, who passed away about a month or so ago. She was in her 90s. Like, 90 is hard. 90 wears you out. 90 is old, right? Um, So, Genesis 18. um, The angels, you got these angels, and the Lord is what the text says. And actually, it is, most theologians agree, it is the pre-incarnate Christ. So, before Jesus shows up, Jesus always was. And so when the angels visit Abraham and Sarah, Jesus is one of them, right? And so they show up. Abraham makes an enormous meal. He has his, like somebody kill a fattened calf. That's enough to feed 40 people. He says, wife, make bread. And they make 36 pounds of flour worth of bread. For me, that's about a biscuit because I weigh so much of it. But the huge meal, huge thing, they have this meal, they interact, and then... They ask, where is your wife, Sarah? And Abraham replies, there in the tent. Then one of them said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now, I think Sarah may have been the first saint in all of the scriptures because she was really old and she followed her husband everywhere and she kind of put up with a lot of nonsense along the way, right? And at this point, she is in her 90s. She is very much, the baby factory is closed, right? No kids. Um, And so she is within earshot of this. And having heard it, she says, 
Um, Now Sarah was listening at the entrance of the tent, which was behind him. Abraham and Sarah were also very old. Sarah was past the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, meaning husband is lowercase l, will I now have this pleasure? Then the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, will I really have a child now that I'm old? Is anything too hard for the Lord, meaning God? I will return to you at the appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Sarah was afraid, and she lied and said, I did not laugh. But he said, yes, you did laugh. Now, let's skip ahead. There's several chapters that happen. Sodom and Gomorrah gets destroyed. They travel around. Some other stuff happens. Sarah puts up with even more nonsense. And we get to chapter 21. Now the Lord was Now the Lord was gracious to Sarah, and he, as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age, at the very time that God had promised him. Abraham gave him the name Isaac, or gave the name Isaac to his son. Sarah bore him. And when his son Isaac was eight days old, Abraham circumcised him as God commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has brought me laughter, and everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. And she added, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. She has gotten the one thing she has wanted for many, many years, this child. The, the thing that has prompted her to put up with nonsense forever. Um, and she's gotten this son, and she names him, he laughs. Why? Because she laughed, but also because they were filled with joy. Isn't it true? Like, kids are joyful. They bring wonder. They bring excitement. And for a 90-something-year-old woman to have a baby is, wow, right? It's the sort of thing you would hear on Ripley's Believe It or Not. Those of you who are young, look it up on the Internet. It's awesome. Uh, it used to be a circus thing, I think, at one point. Um, all right, basic facts here, right? Uh, beginning of the nation of Israel. Abraham is the first Jew. He's the beginning of the nation. A- Abraham and Sarah were super, super old and barren. They were told they would have a child. Sarah doubted. And then the naming of the child was unusual because it reflected what happened. Now, we're going to jump ahead to the book of Luke. And we finally get to Christmas stuff. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Sarah, was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to concede, and they were both very old. Does it sound familiar? God's person. They're very old, and they're childless. Dun-dun-dun. Parallels are never accidental, right? God works through coincidence often. Once, when Zechariah's division, meaning his priestly order, was on duty and he was serving as priest before God. By the way, this would happen once in a lifetime if you were extraordinarily lucky. Got it? Abraham, or I mean, Zechariah would not normally be in the temple. He would have traveled to the temple for a once in a lifetime opportunity to do this one ceremony. Right? Which is the offering of uh, incense, if I'm not mistaken. Um, 
serving as a priest before God, he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time came for the burning of the incense, um, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. And they're actually all waiting for him to come out and say something important. Not going to get into it today. It's really cool. It fits into the Christmas story in a way that most people would never have guessed. It is awesome. Everything in this story is full of all these weird little coincidences and, and like nods to the Old Testament because the last prophet is going to be born. The very end. And the story is all pointing backward throughout. And so... Zechariah is there. He is in the temple. He's about to do his offering. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. I'm going to hit pause here for half a second. What's cool about this is that the temple is the one place in the nation of Israel associated with God's presence. And so he is in the place where God would be present with his people, right? So the one place God is present with his people versus the beginning of God being present with his people. See the parallel? Go on here. Um, when Zechariah saw, saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear, as anybody would be. The place is supposed to be empty. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayers have been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear a son, and you are to call him John. And he will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or any other fermented drink. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many people to the, of Israel to their Lord, their God, to the Lord, their God. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit of the power of Elijah. By the way, there's already like four little parallels in this story to Elijah. Like any Jew hearing this would be like, oh my gosh. This is the story of Elijah. How is this happening? Because they're waiting for Elijah to show up and fix stuff. And all of a sudden, these things happen, and the angel says he'll be in the spirit and power of Elijah. And so the reader, who was Jewish, will be like, oh my goodness, this is insane. Elijah came back, because Elijah is supposed to come back to bring the Messiah. To turn the hearts of the people to their uh, parents, to their children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous. To make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And so there's this prediction, basically, about the birth of a prophet. The prophet. The very last prophet. And everything about this story so far, catch it? Beginning of the Old Testament and the end. They're exactly the same. Right? Do you ever read a book in a series? Right? And you like get to the 10th book. And you read the first one like a decade ago. And you don't even remember who anyone is anymore. And you're like, all right, why am I reading this? I don't remember who this person is. Wait a minute, who's that guy? Who's that guy? What happened there? I don't remember. And you almost have to go back and start over. It's really frustrating. Part of what's happening here is there is emphasis in all these parallels. They are pouring on the gas of God is bringing it to completion. And Jewish readers would be like astonished, Right? They would be filled with wonder at this story. And actually, I suspect that most of us at some time in our lives felt wonder at the story of Christ, at the story of the angels singing in the sky, at the story of a virgin birth, at a story of like all of this stuff. It is wondrous and it is exciting, but it gets old. And we have to buy presents. And that annoying uncle is going to visit this year, even though you told him not to. 
And the wonder wanders off because we're so busy focusing on this nonsense that is not about Christ. I'm going to go on here. We've got a couple more things here and we'll be done, all right? Um, meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he had stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to the... Oh, did I miss a part of that? Uh, I did. Um, Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? By the way, this is the same question that Mary asks the angel later, and she doesn't get in trouble. She's commended for her faith. Zechariah asks it, and they're like, it, it ends differently. I am an old man, and my wife is well along in years. He's doing a Sarah, right? And the angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens, because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. Now, watch this. At this point in time, Zechariah doubts and is rebuked. Very same thing happened with Abraham and Sarah. Any Jewish readers picking this up? And they'd be like, oh, wow, this is amazing. And so Zechariah comes out, and he can't speak, and he's not able to speak for all kinds of months. And Sarah probably, I mean, Elizabeth probably really enjoyed it. Um, Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondered why he had stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. And after his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion, the Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown favor and taken away my disgrace among the people, which he did for Abraham. I'm going to tighten up here. I'm going to skip a slide, and I'll just tell you the summarized version. Um, So when the time comes for naming the baby, the normal habit or custom would be to name the baby after the father. And the wife says, we're going to name him John. And Zechariah, who is unable to speak, takes a little slate and writes, his name is John, and they name him John. And everybody is fascinated and excited because names were powerful. What you were named determined who you were, which makes you think that the guy who named Jacob, which means liar, was probably a jerk um, or had other kids and knew what they were like. Um, In this instance, they name him John. And everybody's astonished, like, how can he be named John? But they also know like this 65-year-old lady just had a baby. And her fa- husband like, had a vision in the temple and couldn't speak. And then they named him John. And John means Yahweh is gracious. Or Yahweh shows mercy. Or Yahweh shows like, uh, like compassion and is, is forgiving. And like this is pointing forward to Christ's coming. All of these parallels, right? The beginning of the nation versus the, the um, God's, you know, God's presence in the nation and God's presence in the temple with Jacob, or not Jacob, Zechariah. Abraham and, Sarah, Abraham and Sarah, Zechariah and Elizabeth both being old and barren. Um, being told they would have a child and doubt being the response. Uh, and finally, this unusual naming circumstance. All of this stuff, all of these parallels are huge. And for the people around them, actually the text in Luke ends with all of the neighbors saying, what is going on? Something is happening. 
They would have been astonished. They would have been amazed. They would have been excited. They would have been filled with wonder. I remember when I was a little kid, my parents insisted that we do a Christmas gift opening at night, the night before. They said it was the German way of doing things. I deeply suspected also involved them sleeping in. So somehow they arranged it with Santa Claus to show up the night before. And I remember waiting in my room with my siblings and sort of excited because we knew that Santa was in the living room because we heard him yell, ho, ho, ho. We wanted to go see him, but we weren't allowed out of our rooms. And they're putting the presents out and all this. I guess Santa was there and they, he ate our cookies, which I kind of wonder if my dad ate a couple. Um, and we went out and we were astonished and filled with wonder and all of this other stuff. And like, kids have wonder. We become adults and we figure out how stuff works and wonder goes away. It is the biggest curse with adulthood. The story of the birth of Jesus. The story of, like, even just starting with this, where God sets the stage for Christ's birth with the birth of the very last prophet. And everything about his birth, everything about his life, like, completes this, like, the first five books of the series. Right? It all comes together. And it was carefully thought out. Everyone who read this would have been excited. They would have been filled with wonder. And then, actually, if you read Mark's gospel, the very first line is, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah. And then he tells the story of John the Baptist. And so Mark's readers, who would have been Jews, would have read that and been like, holy what? God is coming to save us. Childlike wonder sets in. What does all this mean? John is significant because he's the last prophet. The old covenants are coming to an end. They set the stage for how all of it is going to fit together. And I kid you not, every one of the agreements, every law that's in the scriptures, all of it fits together like a giant puzzle. And it is beautiful. And it is astonishing. The problem is that it gets comfortable and we forget. Right? We get tired of hearing Mariah Carey sing stupid Christmas songs And we forget that go tell it on the mountain is a thing, right? We get tired of like Thanksgiving and then all of a sudden like it's not even Thanksgiving yet and there's Christmas junk everywhere in Walmart, right? Amen. Thank you. We get tired of all of the nonsense associated with it and I got to run and I got to do this and I got to bake that and these people are visiting and I don't even like them and all of this stuff. I got to buy gifts for my sister who's got like 12 kids and I got this and that and like the the wonder is gone but ultimately this is the fulfillment of something amazing and beautiful I remember the first time I drove a car as a kid and it was exciting and the first time I popped open the hood of a car and took something apart and put it back together. It was exciting. And I remember reading about how engines worked, and it was exciting. And now I'm like 80, and every time my car makes a noise it's not supposed to, I'm not excited anymore. The wonders of the internal combustion engine are horrible, especially when it's snowing. But once upon a time, it was wondrous. The ingenuity and the engineering and the design. The scriptures are designed. They are ingenuity. There's ingenuity dripping off of every page. There is a 
theme of Christ's life and ministry in every passage of the Old Testament. It all points forward to him, and it is wonderful and wondrous. And the story of John, it's this recap of everything from before, and it points forward to this amazing beautiful thing that is about to happen where God himself is going to become one of us and he's going to carry our sins. So like when I am my worst person I could possibly be, have you guys had that day? The day you look back on and you're still ashamed of and nobody else knows about it or those secret thoughts you try to pretend aren't there or whatever. Christ knows them and he comes and he gets punished for them and I get forgiven. And that's built into that covenant thing, by the way. The reason that works is part of that covenant thing. It is beautiful. It's amazing. Well-designed. Awesome. Something to wonder at. And this whole season, part of the reason that we celebrate is because we are filled with wonder. We are filled with excitement. We are filled with, like, overpowering awe at God's work. Or at least we're supposed to be. The setting in which Christ was born was one of great anticipation and hurt. But people are filled with hope, and they have a great deal of wonder and excitement. Now, I think sometimes... The setting where we tell the story of Jesus is one where people are tired and they're kind of annoyed and they feel like everybody's trying to reach into their wallet this month, right? And we just, we're comfortable and we don't care sometimes. What do we do with this story? Well, this month, if we're preparing ourselves for Christmas, we are preparing for a king to show up. A king who is there before the universe was made, before time existed, before space existed, who was surrounded by angels who worshipped him day and night, if day and night were even a thing, but they aren't because time and space didn't exist yet. I mean, like, he made all that stuff, and he became one of us to save you. To save you when you were filled with doubt, or when you were mean, or when you were a backstabber, when you were a liar, or when you got drunk and did something horrible, or whatever, all of that garbage he's going to carry on his back. And we should be filled with wonder and excitement that God orchestrated all of history to save us. And so part of what we can do for that is we can read and we can learn and we can pray about the stuff we're reading and learning. And we can fill ourselves with wonder over what God has done. Because oftentimes once you get comfortable with a subject and you think you know anything, everything, you stop learning about it. Anybody else? I'm assuming farmers just quit reading about why plants grow, photosynthesis. Nobody cares, right? Chlorophyll, more like borophyll. But the truth is the more, thank you for laughing at that, Titus. Um, the more we fill ourselves with this, the more we are excited and filled with wonder. And we have to do this because it's like the story of how you met your wife. You remember? Your heart would skip beats. Like you'd hold hands with her and your hand would tingle, Right? The first kiss you had with her, it was like amazing. Everything about it. And now it's like, oh my gosh, can you please just give me a little more of the bed? Isn't it your turn to let the dog out? You made that child. You deal with them. And it's important that we back up and we spend some time in wonder. This beautiful woman somehow made the mistake of marrying me. During this season, during this month, we prepare by getting ready, by drawing ourselves into his presence, by remembering why we love him, why it's amazing that he died for us, why the whole story is exciting. We rekindle our sense of awe and wonder at Christmas. That's what Christmas is for. And we tell people, whenever I'm excited about something, I talk about it. It is true. 
I talk about it. Why? Because I want people to know about the thing I'm excited about, right? One of the things we do is we participate in all of the stuff associated. Are we doing communion today after all, or did that not work? Okay. We do all of the stuff. <laughs> we had a, 